Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is our scripture reading and focus this morning. If you're visiting with us, you can find the Psalms pretty close to the center of your Bible. It's a rather big book in the Bible. There's 150 Psalms, and this summer we've been going through the Psalms, Pastor Taylor and myself, looking at some different uh, Psalms and some different kinds of Psalms. As we've been seeing, especially at the beginning of the Psalter, there's uh, psalms of what we call lament, our psalms of despair. We've looked at a few of those. Uh, last week, we looked at a psalm of repentance, uh, which expresses what it looks like to uh, humbly confess our sins to the Lord. And Psalm 73 here is a psalm we might call of wisdom, a psalm that helps us to understand this world that we're living in and to understand our place in it. And so Psalm 73, again, is our scripture reading. Remind you, beloved, that this is the word of the living God. Let's give our careful attention to it. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They are always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Well, beloved of the Lord, have you ever seen a movie or read a book where the bad guy won in the end? You know, I watched a show like this recently uh, during multiple seasons, 
And in the end, the the people that I thought should have prospered didn't, and the bad people got away. And you could just ask my wife after watching that show uh, how angry it left me even for a few days. Uh, We hate endings like this because I think deep down we all know that things are not supposed to go that way. Right, children? The bad guys should lose in the end, and the good guys should win. Uh, But here in our psalm, There's a believer by the name of Asaph who is struggling in the faith because he looks out into this world and he sees evil winning the day. And in his assessment, the world is completely backwards. And this causes Asaph to actually doubt God, to doubt the goodness of God. Again, as we look through the Psalms, there's many things that could cause us to doubt God. Psalm 10, we see how injustice can cause us to question God. Psalm 13, which we heard from Pastor Taylor, we see how ongoing trials like persecution, battles against sin, these things could cause us to doubt God. Well, in Psalm 73, one of these chief musicians in Israel, a worship leader named Asaph, he descended into doubt because he became envious of wicked people. And there was a time when he wondered, is it even worth it to follow God? Right? When I don't seem to get much in life, is it even worth it to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, beloved, we need to listen to this psalm because we too can find ourselves doubting the goodness of God as we think about the circumstances of our own life and as we think about this world around us. Uh, Today we want to think about how we can fix our eyes on Jesus in these times of doubt. And so first we're going to consider Asaph's descent into doubt. And then we will consider together Asaph's ascent back to understanding. But before we get into Asaph's descent into doubt, notice verse 1. It actually starts good. Asaph, we see his profession of faith. You see it there in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph begins in a good place. He recognizes the goodness of God towards those who are committed to following him. This is Asaph's confession. This is what Asaph believes deep down in his heart. God, he's good. But notice in this psalm, he shows us how he came to really believe that truth. Right? It's one thing to grow up understanding the Christian faith intellectually in our minds, confessing things like God is good. It's another thing to make it through cancer, to make it through a struggling marriage, to make it through a wayward child, and to say in the face of those circumstances, God is good. You see here, Asaph knew texts like Psalm 1, which is very black and white. Right? Psalm 1, the wicked are like chaff that are driven away. The righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water. The psalmist will say in Psalm 1, in all that he does, he prospers. But notice, when Asaph's experience begins to contradict that truth, he begins to descend into doubt. And this is our first main point, Asaph's descent into doubt. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Notice this man is not shy about sharing his struggles. He almost fell away from God. Asaph, again, was a worship leader 
in Israel. He was one of God's chief musicians who would lead God's people to regularly invoke God's name, praise him in song, and remember his steadfast love. If you looked at 1 Chronicles 16, which we heard in the call to worship, you would see the song that Asaph used to sing in that text. We see in Psalms like this, beloved, even leaders within the covenant community of God can wrestle with doubt. Pastors, elders, deacons, we're all ordinary men who could struggle with the things of God. Well, why was Asaph doubting God's goodness? Well, he tells us one reason is because he says he began to envy other people. According to the Oxford Dictionary, uh, to be envious is to be discontent or resentful inside because you want someone else's possessions, qualities, or good fortunes in their life. Envy, beloved, is blinding to us. Envy comes up in our hearts when we begin to compare ourselves with other people. We compare our stuff with their stuff. We compare our character with their character. We compare our marriage with their marriage. We compare our circumstances in life with their circumstances. And perhaps we get angry even with God because we think, Lord, I deserve better. You're not treating me like I deserve. And we begin to criticize how God is caring for us in our life. Psalm 37 verse 1 warns against this. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade away like grass and wither like the green herb. But Asaph is honest here. He's saying, people of God, look, for a time I took my eyes off of things above and I set them on things below. For a time I became envious of the wicked. What did he see? Again, for a time, Asaph, he simply saw prosperity of people who didn't follow God. The word translated here, prosperity, is actually that word shalom, the word that you hear at the end of the benediction. May God give you his peace, his shalom, his prosperity. You see, Asaph is saying it looks like all the ungodly people out there are enjoying God's shalom. They get peace, they get prosperity, they have good health, right? Asaph is looking here around and, and he's saying, look, these people's Instagrams always look good. Their marriages look good. They're eating the most decadent food. They get to go on the best vacations. They don't have to worry about money like me, right? They get all of these blessings and what do I get, God? I'm just afflicted by you every morning, he says. I suffer your curses. Not only do these people prosper, but notice verse 11, they also seem to mock God without any consequences. He says these people are prideful, they're violent, they scoff at other people, they threaten oppression, and they mock God saying this, does the Most High even see? It's been said of Dionysius the Younger, the ancient tyrant in Sicily, that when he plundered the temple of Syracuse, he sailed home safely with his loot, and he said, do you not see how the gods favor those who commit sacrilege? Why do evil people go unpunished? Why do some abusers get away with their evil deeds that they do in secret? 
Why do some wicked politicians who mock God get to stay in power and get reelected? Why does the drunk driver get to go away from the accident when the innocent are killed? Doesn't life seem backwards sometimes? Asaph is thinking, if God is good, and if God is in control, then wicked people should not prosper, and I should be blessed. But this is not what he's experiencing. Not only are ungodly people prospering, but Asaph says, I seem to be cursed. Look at verse 14. All day long, I'm stricken and I'm rebuked. Beloved, isn't it true that when we're struggling and we see other people doing well, it could actually make us a bit angry at God? Notice Asaph's frustration in verse 13. You hear his despair. All in vain, I have kept my hands clean. If something is vain, it's useless or it's meaningless. Asaph is wondering, why am I trying to follow God when it seems to profit me nothing? Paul writes in the New Testament that if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then we might as well be like the ungodly. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is it. Live it up because it's the best life that you have. If there is no resurrection, nothing matters. It's useless to live for Christ. But even as Christians, even though we confess that Jesus is raised from the dead, we still struggle, we still wonder if our efforts are in vain. In the home, in church, at school, raising kids, is it worth it? Uh, Not too long ago when I was back in Canada, I was talking with a lady at a different church, and she didn't have any children. Uh, She was married later in life in her 40s. She told me, sometimes, you know, life feels unfair. She said throughout her life, she kept herself, you know, sexually pure uh, until she got married. And she wanted children so bad. And it seemed like people that she knew who didn't follow Jesus, who just gave themselves to other people uh, in their bodies, they got to, you know, have children quickly and they got married earlier. And I remember her crying when I was talking with her. And I remember her saying to me something like this, you know, what about me? I'm trying to honor God with my life and I get nothing from him and everyone else seems to be blessed who doesn't follow God. Asaph was having a similar experience. He was on the edge of falling away, beloved, because his experience didn't seem to match God's promises. Well, beloved, in the Bible, God gives to us psalms like Psalm 1, which are very black and white. He gives us texts like the Proverbs, which show us how the world generally operates. But God, beloved, also gives to his church texts like Psalm 73, books like Job, books like Ecclesiastes, which remind us that life is not always neat and tidy. Sometimes the bad people go free. Sometimes the righteous suffer. The famous G.K. Chesterton put it like this, the real trouble in this world, he says, is not that it is unreasonable, nor that that it is a completely reasonable world. The commonest kind of trouble is that our world is nearly reasonable, but not quite. 
Life is not an illogicality, yet it is a trap for logicians. In other words, he's saying, look, life, it's not utter random chaos, but it's also not completely predictable. There is no formula that you follow that guarantees a particular outcome. Notice what the preachers, or notice what Asaph says here in verse 16. You hear him wrestling and he says, verse 16, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. Other translations like the ESV, when I sought to understand this, it was a wearisome task. When left to ourselves and to our own thinking and our own philosophizing, our own trying to connect the dots of why things are working out the way that they are, we can get exhausted. You've probably been there before because we are creatures and we're trying to connect the dots that only make sense in the mind of God. And so how do we receive insight? How do we receive comfort in this world that is so backwards at times? Beloved, Asaph began to find peace when he worshiped the God who knows all things. If you look at verse 17, we come to our second main point, and now we begin to see Asaph's ascent to understanding. Asaph didn't come to understanding because he went deeper into himself to try to fan the answers, not because he tried to make rational sense of everything going on with his circumstances. No, Asaph received understanding when he came to that place of worship and when he was reminded of who God is, who he is, and what the end of all man is. Notice, this was oppressive to me. Till what? Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Right, in the Old Testament, you might be familiar with the temple worship, right? What did Asaph see with his eyes when he went to the sanctuary of God? Well, in front of the holy place, there would have been what's called the altar of burnt offerings, a place where an animal was literally sacrificed, symbolically showing the forgiveness of sins. Asaph went there and he would have saw actual blood. He would have saw charred animal pieces. He would have seen that place of awful sacrifice. And what does that place remind us of? It reminds us that the wages of sin is death, Romans 3. Yes, the wicked might mock God, disregard his law, live for themselves, but if you die without a substitute, you die in your sins. But that place of sacrifice also reminded Asaph and the people of faith, Romans 3, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are reminded of these things, beloved, in worship. When we come to worship God like Asaph, beloved, the Lord by his spirit, he gives us new eyes to see the world correctly, to see ourselves rightly, to even look at our circumstances with better lens. It's like we've been blind all of our life, but God puts the glasses on us and he helps us to see more clearly. One scholar puts it like this, worship puts God at the center of our vision. And only when God is at the center of our vision 
can we see things as they truly are? How does this work? How does worshiping God, even in this moment, throughout our week, when we're opening our Bibles, when we're praying, when we're singing, how does worship shape our perspective? There's a number of things I want to highlight for you briefly. First, worship reminds us of who we are before God. Notice what Asaph says here in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Asaph is reminded in worship of his humble condition, that he is small and finite. And he says to essentially, Lord, I was so stupid. My eyes were fixed only on the things of this world. I was like an animal, not looking up to the heavens, but just looking down. I was judging life simply by what I could see. You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt bitterness and anger rise in your heart? But maybe when you began to pray, or when you began to sing, or when you began to listen to a sermon, God was ministering to your heart, and you found your heart softening again. You find it growing humble because you recognize who you are and the greatness of your God. You see, sometimes we envy other people because we forget that we are just creatures who don't deserve anything good from God. But God has been so kind to us, so gracious to us, and everything that we have in this life, beloved, is an undeserved gift of grace. Worship reminds us of who we are. Second, worship reminds us of God's judgment. Asaph looked at that altar of sacrifice, and then he said this, surely you put them on slippery ground, verse 18. You cast them down to ruin. Beloved, things are not all that they seem. It's not always good to try to read what we call providence in your life, especially when things are tough, because you might interpret things wrongly, right? You might think, I'm experiencing affliction today. I'm getting sick. My marriage is hurting. God must be mad at me. God must hate me. I must not be a child of God. But again, things are not all that they seem. The wicked prospering it is actually, Asaph says, they're actually standing on, on dangerous ground. They're actually on a very unstable foundation. It's like they're having a party next to a cliff and they don't even realize it. They don't even realize that soon they're about to fall off into destruction. Therefore, God says to us in texts like Proverbs 23, 18, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Worship reminds us of ourselves. Worship reminds us of God's judgment. Third, beloved, verse 23, worship reminds us of God's nearness. You are continually with me. You hold me by your right hand and you will lead me to glory. Beloved, these are not just future blessings for the Christian, but this is a present reality for every child of God, every child that trusts in Jesus. Worship reminds us that God is the one who is leading us, protecting us, and guiding us. Not too long ago, I was hiking with my own family in Mount Baldy as we were exploring the new area, 
And my kids are quite brave and adventurous. They enjoy the outdoors. But there are some points on the trail uh, that they got nervous because there's a cliff. And I remember my son, you know, wanting to hold my hand and my daughter holding my wife's hand. And of course, we held their hands, assured them, hey, we're not going to let you fall, buddy. We're with you. We'll take care of you. Nothing bad's going to happen, right? Your dad's with you. And in an infinitely greater way, God is the one who is guiding us by the hand throughout this life. This is not the God of deism who is disconnected from this world, who made it and then just walked away from it. But this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our Savior who said to us, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And as New Testament Christians, with even more knowledge than Asaph had here, we can celebrate texts like this because we see Jesus. Was not Jesus tempted like Asaph to doubt the goodness of God? Like Eve in the garden and like Asaph here, Satan tempted Jesus to enjoy another path to blessedness when he was in the wilderness. Jesus, just bow down to me, Satan said, and all of the kingdoms of this earth will be yours. But Jesus trusted in the goodness of his Father. And the cross of Jesus reminds us that God knows how backwards this world can be at, the, at times. Was there ever a time in human history more backwards than when the Son of God, who had no sin of his own, was crucified and nailed to a Roman cross. You see, in the history of humanity, there has only been one truly righteous man who was stricken and cursed by God, one who did not deserve it, and that man was not Asaph, but it was Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Jesus is the only man who deserved true prosperity, shalom, peace, but instead he was cursed by God at the cross because our sins were laid upon him. And this is so that today we might know for certain that God is good and that God is with us in every season of life. And now the risen Savior who's conquered sin and death says to us from heaven, beloved church of Jesus Christ, your labors are not in vain. Your prayers are not in vain. Your living for me is not in vain. Your fight against sin that you want to just throw in the towel with at times, it's not in vain. Because Jesus is raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. Worship reminds us of God's nearness. Worship reminds us, fourthly, that God is our treasure. Yes, wicked people might enjoy some pretty cool stuff, but God is the treasure of his people. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And what on earth do I desire besides you? In other words, let the wicked have their stuff. It all has an expiration date. It's not going with them when they breathe their last. But God, I have in you something that will never fade away. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is the strength of his people's heart. He's their portion forever. He's their treasure. 
The Apostle Paul said it like this in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And again in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, God, you are enough for me. You're my treasure. Take everything away from my life. Withhold every other blessing. Just give me you, and I have all that I need. This is what we are about to sing in our song of response. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only are first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Not too long ago in Canada, there was a young man by the name of Jonathan in one of our sister churches who died in his late 20s. He had what's called muscular dystrophy, which is a disease that results in the slow breakdown of your skeletal muscles over time. At the end of Jonathan's life, the only thing that he could move was his fingertips. But he made profession of faith in the last year of his life, and he found great joy even in the midst of his disease. And on the day that he died, he, he seemed to kind of know that it was coming. And so he, he called his family to come and pray with him. Uh, he texted his friends and said goodbye, asked them to pray with him. And he spoke of the incredible peace that he had in the face of death. And this is the comfort, and this is the confidence that Asaph describes. And beloved, this is the blessing that God imparts to every child of God. So that we can say, because of Jesus, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Worship reminds us, beloved, that God is enough for us. And in him we have everything that we truly need. Beloved, one day our bodies are going to fail us. They're going to begin to deteriorate. They're going to break down as we come closer to death. Where is comfort to be found on days like that? It's in this psalm. It's in this verse. God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. Finally, beloved, the last thing worship reminds us of as we close is our future. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and notice, and afterward you will take me into glory. The wicked may enjoy their best life now, but Asaph is saying their end is destruction. And think about this, in comparison to eternity, they enjoy only a few short days of temporary joy. But for the Christian, although our days are a mixture of joy and sorrow, we're headed to a life of blessedness beyond all imagination. This is what the Bible calls glory. And the Bible even says, even right now, the light and the momentary afflictions that we have to endure, they're actually preparing for us greater glory making heaven that much more sweet for us. Amazing. This is why Asaph can conclude this psalm where he began. Truly, God is good to his people. 
Notice at the end of this psalm, he comes full circle to his original confession. God is good in what? It is good to be near God. Beloved, even when life is backwards, God is near to uphold us, to protect us, and to guide us all the way home. We may have real doubts in the faith like Asaph did, but when those dark days come, beloved, let us not go deeper into ourselves for the answer. Let us not try to read providence and connect all the dots, but instead let us worship the God who knows all things and remember that in him we have everything that we truly need. Amen. Let's pray together. Indeed, our Father in heaven, we pray that these words of Asaph would be the confession of our own hearts, that God, you would be the strength of our heart and our portion forever, that there would be nothing in heaven or on earth that we would desire above you. But Father, teach us what it means to find in Jesus Christ everything that we need. Lord, even as we sing now this beautiful hymn, Be Thou My Vision, we pray that it would be our prayer together as your church. That, Lord, even as we sing, you would help us to worship you and to fix our eyes on things above, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one seated at your right hand. And, Father, for those who are living today in rebellion against you and in unbelief, living for the things simply of earth, Show them, Lord, that it cannot satisfy their hearts. They were made for you, and their hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so, Lord, we pray that today they would turn away from the things that cannot satisfy but actually destroy, and that they would find new life in the risen Christ. For we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.